Hello and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world, addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This fourth series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of music, and we're really concentrating on two parts. One is new ways of creating music, and the other one is uh, how to properly monetize and value music in these changing times. So for this episode, I'd like to introduce to you uh, Bob Boster, who's president of Clearcom. Bob's talking to us from California, and he'll talk about things like how to build a business career whilst at the same time having an artistic career, as well as things like how to properly monetize the output of really niche artists, because a lot of the areas of art he is associated with are areas that are somewhat niche. And I think this will be a really fascinating conversation. So hello, Bob. Hi, Graham. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're really welcome. Thanks for coming along. Can we start by having you um, tell us something about yourself and how you got to where you are now? Sure. Um, so I have an unusual background for somebody with the title of president of a company, of any company, really. I guess maybe in the audiovisual business, there's a little bit more expectation that people might come from a creative background. But uh, my association with ClearCom started when I was very young. I first started doing um, community theater when I was seven. I was on stage for the first time when I was seven. And when I was either eight or nine, I started working backstage and wore a ClearCom belt pack while uh, working as a stagehand. So my association with ClearCom goes back all the way back to my childhood and my um, life as a person who thinks that they're creative alongside of whatever else they're doing, like going to school or other things, um, goes back to that point as well. Um, ultimately, when I went off to uh, first secondary school and then university, um, I had uh, I was active in um, choirs. I was um, a casual musician playing um, music for fun with uh, friends, and also had been working actively in theater for a number of years. Um, and I worked on stage, direct doing direction, playwriting, producing shows, and then of course doing technical theater. So. All of that was sort of all uh, wound together for me and um, sort of became a natural part of just me thinking about who I am as a person and my sort of normal life and normal set of self-expression. When I was at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, uh, I started playing in some bands and that led me into more actively working scoring and uh, doing sound design for both theatrical performances and a lot of uh, choreography. So. Uh, working as a composer, doing original and often improvised work for dance performances was a place where I really extended my musical practice from something that um, hadn't been that well bounded in verse, chorus, pop kind of structures in the first place. But then there's nothing like having to do a live and often different performance every day in front of uh, a, a dance audience to make you really stretch yourself out and think, think creatively. 
from there, I took a break from doing uh, live theater production and uh, was playing mostly playing in bands and doing a little bit of work uh, as an audio engineer, mostly uh, dance performances, but also mixing some rock and roll shows. And then uh, started working in uh, radio. So college radio was an important thing in Chapel Hill. Uh, the music scene there was really rooted in the student station, and I was uh, anxious to try to get online there. Started working at WXYC um, as a DJ and then started doing production work there. Got involved in doing some talk shows there and also doing some live, um, really improvised radio art there. And that was an interesting thing that we had um, a group of people doing a regular um, three-hour, uh, once-a-month performance on the air with mixing in content from the audience and collaborating uh, with manipulating vinyl and CDs as well as, uh, as well as tape loops and really traditional old style analog tape loops and, and all of that. Um, and so that was another place where I really extended my, my audio practice into something that um, kind of led into the experimental. And ultimately I was at a point there when I, sort of finally finished my student work at UNC, that it was time for me to figure out something else to do. And I got exposed to Mills College when I came out to California for a friend's wedding in Sacramento. And one of my friends from high school had gone to Mills and had, had known quite an interesting group of composers who were studying at Mills while she was there as an undergrad. Having met a couple of those people, I was um, inspired to sort of investigate more about Mills as a potential place to go study. And I uh, applied sort of a little bit as a lark because I did not write music in the traditional sense of things. And so uh, it was unusual for me to um, be applying to an MFA program in music, but um, I did get in and um, largely on the strength of my work. Um, and overall, my creative resume, I think, was pretty extensive. So I moved out to California and found a like-minded community in the Bay Area of people doing a wide variety of different kinds of related musical practices. There was certainly improvisational jazz. There was certainly scored contemporary classical music, but there was also um, collage and DJ culture. There was ambient music. There were people doing soundtrack things. There was non-idiomatic improv improvised music. Um, there was some Black liberation theology uh, work that had kind of drifted from the, the church performance practice into, um, into musical activities. There's just a lot going on, and I was fascinated to participate in that, and my um, audio practice uh, kind of fell into that mode where I was doing different kinds of things with different people um, across multiple, if you like, genres, um, depending on what day of the week it was and what project was and whether I was uh, leading it or following and, um, and all of the above. So that became a, an interesting area for me. Um, I enjoyed that time and it was a pretty exciting time to be um, active as a, as a composer, but I needed something to keep the lights on while I was finishing up my graduate study. So I started working at Orban, which is a fairly legendary um, audio uh, company in the radio business, especially. Um, I started there in the testing department and uh, got interested in testing software. And that led me into the uh, manuf audio manufacturer business. Um, 
So bounced around in a, in a couple of companies, which included me leaving the Bay Area for a while. I lived in Michigan for a couple of years and in um, England for a couple of years, then came back to the Bay Area and ultimately found myself um, applying for a sales position at Clearcom. And I knew the Clearcom brand, obviously, because I had used it over the years, but hadn't really understood the width and the breadth of all the different markets that Clearcom serves. And so as somebody with a sort of a wide interest in different kinds of human practices, it was fascinating to be able to address a broadcast customer um, in the morning and then go see a theatrical customer in the afternoon. And then the following day, go visit an aerospace customer. And then maybe the next day, somebody who's doing um, scientific testing. And all of those were all the kinds of people I was working with. And um, the fact that they were all using audio to communicate with each other um, sort of bounded together and allowed me to, um, to interact with them and be of some kind of service. So my time at Clearcom has sort of been an interesting one because the business has gone through so many transitions during that time. Uh, we were acquired. Um, that acquisition ended up having us merge with the pro audio part of our parent company, um, HM Electronics. So to clear the Clearcom of today um, is uh, both of those two companies. And then we've also acquired another company subsequent to my time there. So I've had the, the, um, the experience of being in an acquisition as well. And um, during all of that time, really had the, the good fortune to be working with a gigantic network of resellers that we use to um, address the market globally, of which there are other like-minded people who are interested in audio experiences and live events and coordinating people coordinating different kinds of activities. And so it's, uh, it's really allowed me to scratch the itch, if you like, uh, during, mm-hmm. my, during my time as president. Um, and somewhere in that period, I had to sort of set aside um, or mostly set aside my, my creative audio practices because uh, it's just been a, a bit much being a parent of a teenager, uh, running a global company and uh, trying to keep my, my sound art practices going. But um, I do still dabble and I definitely am quite interested in supporting the work of a lot of people that I've um, worked with over the years. And and come across as just as a fan or a consumer of their art. Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating story and hopefully an inspiring one for, for some of our listeners. You mentioned you've had to scale back a lot on your your musical practices. Do you still find time for them at all or is it, has that gone totally? I do. So I actually have sort of two different strategies for um trying to keep my practices alive. Um, one is that uh, an aspect of what I do is really um, a kind of sound collage that I think of as being closely related to the most sort of free form of DJ practices. And so mm-hmm. uh, a way that I can kind of keep that going is I, I'm quite active in um, creating playlists uh, that I really feel like have a, an an opportunity to drive a listener through an experience where um, they might really hear something that they didn't know about before, and it might point some things out to them. Um, some of the files are musical files. Others are sound uh, sounds that I've recorded while I'm just in my travels. Uh, some are text files. I have a huge collection of spoken word um, recordings, many of which are from vinyl, so they have an interesting characteristic vinyl quality as well. So I, I kind of compile these together and, and put them into playlists. And 
and actually, frankly, just um, normally create them as gifts for people. That's my sort of main, um, like, let's say I'm on an airplane, I can tinker around with my playlist on the airplane and then at the end deliver a, a recording of the playlist to somebody as a completed work. And so I do that for friends and family and um, sometimes I make them that are thematically associated with a particular time or moment that I'm going through in terms of something that's happening. Like um, one of my, I think most effective ones was associated with my grandfather's passing. Um, and so it was a way for me to express my sort of response to, and he was somebody who had always inspired me with his uh, passionate um, love of big band music and, um, and other styles of music, but he was really, he was a, he was a scholar of big band music. So um, trying to figure out a way to construct something in relationship to my feelings about that passing was a, a personal expression. Um, and then the other thing is that I have, I don't know, hundreds, maybe in the low thousands of hours of recorded improvisations uh, that I've done uh, both of my own as a solo creator and also with other uh, performers that I've been trying to go through and pull out representative bits of that aren't on other releases and um, put them onto my uh, Bandcamp uh, page. I'm sort of at the point now where I have a group of things out uh, being mastered and I look forward to getting that sort of up and running with some new materials under my audio pseudonym, which is Mr. Merides. People in the sound collage community will probably have bumped across Mr. Merides in one of a number of places. Um, and it'll be nice to have some, some material back up and in front of people. Although uh, a good bit of it isn't in the purely uh, traditional sound collage structure of, of some of the work that's been done under that name. Mm -hmm. I'll have to check. I was just going to ask you when you were talking about the playlists, whether you disseminated those more, more kind of globally uh, within Bandcamp or something like that. But, but then you mentioned you have a, a Bandcamp uh, page. So I'll certainly have to go and check that out. Yeah, I, I haven't put the playlists up for public consumption yet, because there's so much stuff in there that's uh, copyright controlled. And I, I really want to, you know, this is a time to honor the opportunities that people are trying to enjoy for some revenue for their, from their creations. And it's a little challenging to figure out a way to, um, to cover that and still be able to be as free in my selection of materials. So I've kind of had that be more of a private practice. That makes, that makes sense. And I've been listening to a lot recently on uh, different f ways of um, being able to to honor copyright and in non traditional ways. So um, it'll be interesting to see. I think this is a this is really a developing market at the moment, or a developing set of technologies, I suppose. So you mentioned a lot of your um, sound practices are around. Um, collages and sound art in general and i know that that you're also part of a community of of like-minded people and the last time we were talking you were talking about uh your ideas on how really not mainstream types of music music that that appeals to very small niches might still be uh able to you know to to create a living for um the creator of those those types of music. Can you 
elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So it's an area I'm quite interested in. Um, and this gets back to sort of following uh, on my own personal practices of appropriative sound collage, which came out of um, my, my personal experience with doing art on the radio and having that be a live open process where different people can uh, reuse sound material in new ways and by creating new juxtapositions and new contexts make new meaning. That was always very interesting to me. And, and I was, um, and I would say my original work, uh, recorded work in the world on handful of different releases kind of focuses on that idea of that kind of recontextualization. That led me to thinking about how other people are using tools that are, let's say, designed for a variety of purposes like stomp boxes from rock and roll guitar players. You know, there's, there's tens of thousands of these things that have been made over the, over the years. And, um, there's really a niche electronic design practice that exists to create these things. When you think about them being sold at, at uh, Guitar Center to some, for somebody who's uh, imagined as playing in a cover band or whatever, you don't really uh, think about the context of people using them in different ways than that, right? So that idea of the reuse of those tools creates this opportunity for people to make a kind of music that is um, very idiosyncratic, possibly not even musical, right? Maybe it's noise-based. Um, and so I started mm -hmm. to kind of reach out and discover mm -hmm. things that are going on in the noise community, um, which is a very active musical um, community in Northern California, for sure, where people are doing sound performances and making a kind of, a kind of sound art that um, is not bound by musical expectations and often is using um, homemade equipment, things that have been hacked out of toys, um, things that have been taken out of other kind of consumer electronics pieces and, and rebuilt. Um, a, a friend of mine was quite active in building um, fields of piezo microphones that they had taken out of other pieces of equipment um, that they were developing into um, large-scale microphone fields to then use to put in front of interesting and unique sound events um, to pick up um, maybe not an accurate rendition of that, maybe an intentionally inaccurate one, right? Um, so all of that kind of took me into this sort of effort to see, well, what was that like? And in parallel with that, um, I think a lot of people know about cassette culture. So there was an era in which sound artists were making uh, music, probably largely on home recording equipment that was fairly inexpensive and fairly casual. Um, they would produce cassettes of, of work, um, sometimes under some kind of artist, artistic name, sometimes under their own, and exchange those with each other. This was going on in parallel with the same time that the zine movement was going on. A group of kinds of music that I think most people would associate with the punk movement, although it was really, frankly speaking, later than the punk mo movement, uh, was also associated with this culture. Uh, it also gets into sort of anti-capitalist practices and feminist practices and a number of other different cultural areas all sort of feed into this. So my interest in these areas led me to uh, reach out to a number of people who were doing that 
uh, kind of work that I was, I, I ended up for the lack of a better name calling table core with the idea that it was somebody would set up some devices on a table in front of them and make some noise. Um, sometimes that would have pre-recorded elements. Sometimes it would have um, live processing of musical um, instrument playing. Um, and all of this would be sort of structured in a very casual and uh, informal way, informal community. Maybe there would be a dozen people present to hear these performances. Um, sometimes those would be recorded, sometimes they wouldn't. Um, a lot of this kind of work found its way onto community radio stations around the world um, and were played over the air where people would tune in and be like, what am I listening to? I'm not 100% sure I can understand what, what this sound event is I'm, I'm hearing. Um, but it was a very interesting time and era. And so I wrote an academic paper about that for a conference down at UCSD a number of years ago and had the opportunity to present my, present my paper there. Um, where it was really talking about, um, let's say, the different subcultural influences on this on this uh, musical practice, many of which I think were not uh, consciously understood by the practitioners. You know, mm -hmm. um, DJ culture mm -hmm. from the um, from the Afro Caribbean community that led to the creation of hip hop in New York City also deeply influenced this kind of use of um, multiple turntables and distortion and very high audio volumes to create a sort of a unique sound event. Um, many of the people making those kind of noises on set up on their card table in a, a community center with you know a couple dozen of their friends around listening to them wouldn't necessarily know those those cultural links, but they were there for sure. Um, because without the DJ culture from the, let's say from the 70s largely, um, there would be no mixers available for people to use. I mean, this is a musical practice that you, you couldn't say much about as a, common, um, as a commonality because so many people were doing so many different things, but the mixer was at the center of all of this, right? Having there be an inexpensive, whether it be Mackie or some other manufacturer um, mixer that was available for people to put multiple inputs into and sort of juxtapose some sound elements uh, was really the key to this, this musical practice. And that whole thing comes out of DJ culture, um, I think, pretty directly. So was this all happening um, in the Bay Area or is it a global phenomenon? Are people doing it all around the world? Um, well, I would, I would say that the moment that I was experiencing most of that was in the late 90s um, into the early 2000s. Um, and at the time that I was actively sort of keeping track of the, of the let's say, the noise scene, if you like, um, it was a global phenomena for sure. And there were artists who would travel around and there were festivals people would perform, um, perform at. Um, some of those things were... Uh, again, more influenced by more high art practices, where the people, um, the people kind of thinking about that work were as much thinking about Dada and the futurists and mm -hmm. um, practices and concepts that they were familiar with from uh, academic 
artistic education or curricula um, alongside people who are just really interested in what the audio practices were if you put a microphone in a variety of different kinds of tormented environments like what happens when you light a microphone on fire what happens when you drop it off the third story of a building what happens when you run over it with a car um, and turning all of those things into a live performance practice where you're really interested in how does it sound um, you know, and then every spectrum in between. Um, I am not as actively involved in this in the noise scene as I was. I do think that a lot of that practice has gotten to be more immersive and also more video oriented. Because um, I think mm -hmm. uh, the barrier to entry to video production has gone down from a cost standpoint. And so probably more of those people are doing immersive environment work than um, were at the time. So they're, they're, doing multiple projections and um, multi-channel sound systems with some, at least some consciousness towards spatialization. So I think the, I think the, the flow there is migrating a little bit um, more towards a full-fledged AV practice over just being audio-based. Um, but also I think the other issue is they don't listen to audio in a musical release with an album structure of seven songs that run from track one to track seven and you're expected to listen to it in order and all of that right like that part of the curatorial process of people making sound art um, has sort of gone away and so i think it's probably drifted even more into being a live performance based practice as opposed to something where people are doing recordings that's interesting um i'm going to come back to that in a minute but um before we get off this exact subject, was there a way or is there a way to, to hear what's happening around the rest of the world? So if you're doing local performances in front of a few people, which are maybe being broadcast on the community radio station locally, that's a really kind of hyper-local event. But if, if it's happening all around the world, are there kind of internet radio stations or, or file sharing or, you know, is there a way of people knowing what sound artists in Tokyo or Berlin are doing as well as the Bay Area, for example? Sure. So I think um, a couple of things. First of all, there's, as there have always been, there are communities of sound and art making uh, practices where part of what keeps people interested in it is the sort of continual pursuit of the new. Right. Um, so you have a curatorial effect of somebody who's um, heard something that their friend turned them on to when they were in California and now they're living in Berlin. And so they share the idea of certain artists um, being interesting uh, to the community in California with their uh, connections in Berlin. And so next thing you know, somebody's being invited to come over and headline a show um, to play in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's the same size audience, right? Maybe it's maybe it's uh, two dozen people in Berlin in a cafe, just like it would be two dozen people in a community center in California. But um, you do still have that sort of churning of different people crossing over boundaries and doing those kind of performances. I think the thing that's most exciting to me about the era we're currently in, though, is that um, something like Bandcamp exists as a place where people can put this music up for other people to um, consume and enjoy, um, explore, experience, 
Um, I mean, and anyone can go into Bandcamp and type in noise and basically not come out for three weeks. I mean, there's so much stuff on there. Uh, you could just, you, it's just incredible. And then if you, if you broaden that slightly into experimental, then you're pretty much, you know, you, you don't have enough hours in the day. It's just, there's so much stuff from all over the world. So then it turns into a thing where you're looking for connections of like um, somebody you know liked something or downloaded something and you thought that was an interesting thing to check out. Um, I think Bandcamp does a pretty good job of doing feature articles um, in the different genres to um, kind of tip people off to the pieces of work that they're the most interested in or they think is the most engaging uh, of current releases to, to keep people focused on things. Um, so I think now what used to be, if you were lucky, you'd know somebody who had a cassette of somebody's performance of whatever. Um, you know, I knew about Marianne Amache for 10 years before I actually heard a proper Marianne Amache recording. And then now I know enough about Marianne Amache to understand that actually no recording can do justice to what she was doing when she would do her performances because she was actually manipulating things so that she was playing with the different tones that were inside your ear. So um, the context of that kind of of that kind of recorded work is in some cases lost because you can't represent something in a recording that is about what happens when you're in, in a surround audio environment, especially high SPLs. But um, there is nonetheless a community for these people. And I, and I see that because I go wander around and, you know, once some quarter or so, I, I just randomly earmark a, an amount of money to throw at different artists I'd never heard of before in Bandcamp, just as a, as a way to kind of participate in the, in the community and the culture. And so um, I'm sure SoundCloud has an element of that also, although I think Bandcamp has a, um, more structured kind of like audio release kind of elements to it than SoundCloud does. But between those two, um, between those two sites, I think there's, there's a lot of ways to find a lot of these people. Um, and then it's up to us as consumers to, to like tell our friends and to like it in some social media thing and whatever other opportunity there is to cross promote things that we're interested in or we care about. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I certainly that that kind of going to different areas. I see here in Portland, there's a uh, we have Portland Institute for Contemporary Art, who have a festival called TBA Time Based Art, and um, uh, there's very often sound artists there and from all around the world. So I can I, you know, I've been a part of seeing that that dissemination of. Um, of art throughout uh, geographies i it's interesting to me this idea of in in a streaming culture there's very little context behind the music that you're listening to so you, you get to have access to you know any artist that you might desire to hear from all over the world but it's very tough to find um 
what label that artists are on, what you know, who the other musicians on the recording were, right, you know, right. on Spotify or Tidal or something. So there's, you know, in the, in the hi-fi world, there's there's Rune come along, which is an overlay that that allows you to have, if you like, digital liner notes with hyperlinks to the to the musicians, so you can go and find out. Okay, the bass player on this was that, and they've also done that, and and kind of. Um, I remember years and years ago when Tim Westergren brought up Pandora, that was fascinating to me because it was this ability for me to go from artists that I liked to artists that, that were similar to artists that I liked. And I found that when I was at university, there was a very common thread of people listening to the same sorts of music and we exchanged a lot of um, artists. But once I left university, got older, the majority of people I knew were listening to music they listened to at university. And I wanted to kind of keep current and it became more and more difficult. So, you know, Pandora was a good way in. Rune is an interesting way in, but but both of those really only cover mainstream. Um, and it would be interesting to see some sort of project to, to link uh, some of this. So it wasn't only by word of mouth. I was just going to respond to your thing about Pandora because uh, one of the interesting things I, I've experienced is a couple of people that I went to uh, school with at Mills who uh, were there for music, although more there for composition than in my track, which was electronic music, um, ended up working at Pandora in the music categorization um, department as freelancers whose job it was to categorize releases so that the Pandora algorithms could actually correctly work. And um, to me, one of the greatest, most exciting things I ever uh, ever did was the first conversation I had with somebody where they explained to me all the different parameters of categorization that they were expected to deploy when using to categorize this music at um, for Pandora. And so, um, Historically, I've been a big Pandora supporter because I know that the the um, the work that's been done on the library to make the uh, the information present there is very very rigorous and extensive and covers and gets down to like musical structure and um, chord structures and um, uh, instrumentation and how things have been orchestrated and. Um, just a lot of different areas that I think go beyond the like uh, basic, like this was a female pop star from the 90s. So you're going to like other female pop stars from the 90s who charted around the same time or whatever, which is more what it sounds like is happening when I listen to Spotify. Um, but Pandora, it's really detailed. And so one of the interesting things I found over the years is you can game Pandora by plugging in a few artists who are at the very edge of pop music. And um, that can really make it spit out some unusual results. And I've always, I've had fun playing with that at different times to see how far can I push Pandora outside the normal. Um, and it's, uh, sometimes the results are pretty interesting when you start putting in things like, um, I don't know, John Cage or, um, uh, Duke Ellington, and then you put that next to 
um, Xenakis or, or something like that and see what pops out. And then the, your third data point might be something like um, uh, public enemy. You know, if you put in those three data points next mm -hmm. to each other in a stream, Pandora, mm -hmm. something interesting is almost guaranteed to happen. So Pandora is is a fascinating thing. And um, I, you know, it's 400 different musical variables. And I love that they do it all with human curators. And I also love that they uh, have no predisposition towards, say, a major label release. So they certainly when I used to know Tim more, they just take anything that came in the door, whether it was a band dropping their homemade single off or Sony Music's latest release. So there was that sort of egalitarian kind of atmosphere. And we talked early on about uh, Tim was thinking about putting some of the levers at the moment. Well, now you can you can just like or dislike and the it tweaks the algorithm. But in the early days, we were talking about putting levers in. So you could say, OK, the harmonic structure is more important to me than, say, the date of, of the music or the country in which it was produced. And it never happened. It was always going to be too complicated to do, but it was it was a fascinating experiment. That whole music genome project, I think, is is fascinating. So, Bob, um, you were talking to me before about your thoughts about how to do a 20 to 30 date European tour uh, as a fringe artist. Can you can you give me your thoughts about that? This is, this is just cobbled together thoughts based on two different things. One is I have a number of friends who are artists who are working in this kind of way. Um, the other is as a consumer, um, I've often traveled in different regions of the world and found myself trying to use resources that I can think of to track down performances to see of the kinds of music I'm interested in. And I'm always fascinated to find people that I know from other parts of the world playing when I'm going to see a show in, I don't know, in France or in some other country. So, um, so I think the first thing and foremost thing is, I think there is a very robust network of presenters and venues and festivals and other kinds of uh, activities in this uh, community that are looking for artists, especially artists from out of market. So I think if you imagine the normal dynamic of someone is looking for a headliner to play a show, being able to have somebody who's coming from another country will always raise the interest level of a local audience um, who may have seen other artists in a, in a lineup um, before, but are thinking, oh, well, this is exciting. I get a chance to see somebody I don't know. Um, and, and that's always a, a draw. Mm -hmm. So uh, reaching out to these, to these, uh, these venues, presenters and um, sort of seeing what's available on their schedule is very helpful. Another thing I find is that there is really a, not a competitive vibe in this uh, field. So if somebody is booked already or they ha don't have an opening for you in the time window you're looking for, they are very likely to pass you on to other people who can help you, um, partly because they just support the music and they care about it, but also partly because they... Um, they're looking for other people to do the same, right? It's networking 101, really. Like they'd like to be past opportunities mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first thing is um, sort of developing uh, an email uh, list of people who you think might be able to present in a given region, uh, 
sending something out to them, letting them know that you have some potential availability during a time window. Usually, ideally, if you have an anchor gig or two that you can use to help pay your plane fare over. Sometimes these are often likely to be festivals, which are sometimes funded from governmental funds or, or private funding that gives them a little bit more budget to throw around. Uh, sometimes the anchors are not, um, not music gigs, but are uh, lectures, opportunities to present, um, appearances at museums, appearances um, at uh, film festivals, if you happen to have done scoring work, um, or other things like that. So I think all of those are really helpful ideas to look for one or two things that kind of kind of set the time range of you being somewhere, and then you can glue things in in between. Um, sometimes these are not going to be more than a couple hundred dollars in terms of guarantees, and maybe even no guarantee. But one of the great things that I find is if you do have some um, you do have some uh, product to sell, uh, that's really helpful. People really are still very actively excited about collecting vinyl. Um, that's true of even these niche um, forms. And so if you can figure out a way to um, ship to yourself in two or three locations along your travels, um, piles of, um, of product to sell, that's going to be really helpful. Of course, in some instances, you may end up with more than you need, but then you can kind of turn around and try to drop some off at a local record store or something like that and see if you can make a local sale in, in territory. Um, so then the last thing that I think is really helpful in this is to then reach out to other artists who uh, might be interested in trying to collaborate with you. So if you're a um, practitioner and um, maybe you have struck out on trying to find a, um, a headlining gig uh, or the, as a solo performer. Um, maybe look into your network of people that whose music you appreciate or whose work you appreciate and see if they're open to trying to do a collaboration. Um, and then they have their, obviously, their local networks to draw upon as uh, another, another resource there. So I think all of that all tends to work well. Um, if you can kind of get that going now, it can be complicated. You can have a, you know, a month of 40 emails a day uh, trying to figure out all these different gigs, but I think it's a, an opportunity to really make something happen. Um, and then, you know, of course, whatever other opportunities you can come up with for cost savings in terms of sleeping on people's couches or uh, that kind of thing to keep your costs down, um, catching a ride with somebody, whatever, whatever else. Uh, whatever other details are involved. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, be conscious of whatever the rules are about saying you're there to perform when you go into a country. There are a number of places where uh, tourists entering the country on a, as a tourist requires no visa or special um, permits or anything like that. And if you're playing at fairly low visibility gigs, nobody's going to ask you if you have a, a you know, um, a visa to perform in the country. On the other hand, if you're headlining at a major music festival, maybe you should be looking into it. So um, there's a little bit of a of a juggle there to do. Mm. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So um, in the last series of Surroundscapes, we interviewed uh, a woman called Claudia Holmeyer, an old friend of mine, 
who, with her husband Stefan, hosts a festival called Digital Analog in um, in Munich, and they get state funding for that, so that it's a uh, it's a, a festival where the the audience don't pay to come, and it's an experimental music festival. And they they have one or two. It's mainly from Europe, but they usually have one or two from America. And I was actually just it was interesting because just this morning I was. Uh, listening to a podcast that mentioned some work that Amy C. Beale was doing. Um, she wrote a book called New Music, New Allies. I don't know if you've come across it because apparently it's very little known. But it details the role that German state funding has played since the Second World War in bringing American avant-garde artists across to Europe, which was a whole thing that I didn't know about. But apparently um, it was a thing that allowed you know, Cage and a lot of the other avant-garde artists to come come over and do European festivals. Yeah, and there's there's even a, a, a probably a broader and more um, dramatic history of the State Department's activities in trying to promote the U.S. Um, through the avant-garde, uh, not just in music, but in all different kinds of artistic fields during that era and how all that stuff folded together. Um, it's quite quite an interesting history there, and uh, a sort of a part of culture I've always been fascinated about, where the sort of the state interfaces with culture making, um, because in the U.S. obviously that's not as well developed a structure as it is in some of the um, at least formerly, if not currently, socialist democracies in Europe. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, the, that yeah. book actually also detailed the, the you know the U.S. State Department funding and even potential CIA involvement. Um, and that book finished in, in um, 1987. So I was wondering, does that still happen? Has that stopped now? Do you, do you know? Well, there's certainly not. Um, I don't think there's a dramatic association between uh, state-making activities, whether it be the State Department or any part of the US government and thinking about U.S. culture making as needing support globally to do that. Um, I'm sure there are activities where there, you know, there are selected things where there might be a collaboration opportunity, in, especially in the developing world where uh, USAID or other agencies are looking to um, deepen their connection in some, uh, some countries like that by um, bringing artists in to collaborate with local artists in that country or something like that. But um, broadly on the sort of the nature of like a um, cage going to perform um, in Darmstadt or something like that. I don't yeah. think we have yeah. so much of that. I don't think we have so much of that going on anymore, unfortunately. Okay. That's, that's interesting. When I was playing in bands in England, we did occasionally get the opportunity to go and do foreign gigs sponsored by uh, the Arts Council. Um, and even recently, my friend Imogen Heap has uh, recently spent six weeks in China um, recording, again, sponsored by uh, the Arts Council. So so certainly in Europe, it happens a little bit. Anyway, let's move away from that interesting a subject, though it is, and talk about um, your thoughts on how the pandemic has affected the sorts of music people listen to. I ask that because it's actually it's affected the sorts of music I listen to, and I wonder whether it's a more, um, you know, a common a more common thing, and and what your thoughts are on it. We're sitting here in April two thousand and twenty one, 
hopefully much of the way through the pandemic. Um, so anyway, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I think that's a fascinating topic. And I, I, I know that you and I share an interest in this idea of um, kind of keeping up, right? Like staying current with the developments and things. And how does that, how does that impact certain listeners? Um, I think there's a category of people, and I think we all understand that, that who basically are listening to the music that they listened to when they were in, in their 20s. Um, and that's fine, and I don't have any knock on that. But I, then I think there's another category of people who um, want to know what's going on. They want to listen to new things. If there's not something new and they're in the top of their um, their iTunes list and they're, they're feeling disappointed and they're looking around for the next thing, um, and I'm definitely one of those one of those people for sure. Uh, my listening during um, curiously during uh, COVID has kind of drifted into a couple of directions that are not necessarily aligned with each other. <laughs> so one is um, sort of finding these labels on Bandcamp that are doing um, like label label wide subscription deals. Um, there's a label that I'm particularly interested in called 12K, um, and uh, I jumped on the opportunity to basically buy their entire catalog, which I think was something like 90-some-odd um, releases um, for a singular price, and um, that music sort of runs the range from sort of glitchy, um, atmospheric, almost ambient music through um, some noise and field recording-based stuff. Um, there's not a ton of artists who are on there that I was familiar with beforehand. Um, the guy who uh, runs it is in, who is involved in a lot of the recordings, but not all of them named Taylor Dupree, I think his name is. Um, and so I found that sort of exploring a big library of stuff all at once and like going to different ones on different days and just trying them out, not having really any idea what I was going to get into when I clicked on it. Uh, to be a very um, engaging part of my time during COVID. And, and so that was quite enjoyable for me. So for me, I think one would be sort of discovery. You know, we were in a time when we couldn't discover things in the ways we might have previously, like going to record stores or going out and seeing shows and being like going to see an artist. And then the opening band would be somebody you wouldn't know. And so you'd have a chance to experience something new or whatever. Um, those things were sort of not really happening. Um, reviews of concerts was not happening, you know, a lot of things like that. So there was obviously some people were streaming gigs, but that tended to be more mainstream artists, not so much people who are in the, in the, uh, margins. Um, so for me, it was trying to find new ways to discover music and using that as part of my experience there. Um, I think the other thing that I found was I really wanted to um, listen to music that was clearly heartfelt. Um, you know, there's a there's a spectrum of, of different kinds of music where you could say there's something soulful to it um, and that that's part of what you're being presented with. Um, I happen to like that kind of experience in a lot of different fields. I, you know, I listen to um, you know, old school R&B just as readily as I listen to a current folk release, just as readily as I listen to um, a particularly uh, nice modern opera. 
you know, all of those are all, can all necessarily be something that transmits soulfulness to me, but I find that to be, um, if I'm listening not to discover, but listening to, um, as I guess in popular culture, they've started to say self-soothe, um, mm -hmm. my self-soothing has been more aligned towards kinds of things that I would say are soulful. Um, some of that was, uh, independent uh, sort of contemporary bluegrass records, some more folky things, uh, a few things that were almost um, like independent um, uh, post-punk, but just things that had that feeling to me and not so much stuff that was, um, you know, super detail, um, lots of instrumentation, um, lots of complexity, and also not as much stuff that was like, rhythmic or bouncy or things where the the thing was propulsive or trying to push me forward in some kind of way so those would be the two things that drove me whether or not that those same things would be true for other people i don't know but my guess is for most people there was something that they found that triggered them or made them feel the feelings of self-soothing and so they latched onto that and and kind of went deep um so it'd yeah. be interesting to see what that was if you were if you were, had an ability to look at the Spotify and Pandora um, requests over the COVID time to see how different that was from before COVID, um, it would be interesting to see where the where the differentiations might be. Yeah, that that would be fascinating to do. I mean, my my own things as as you said, typically I really don't spend a lot of time listening to stuff I listened to decades ago. Um, However, I did at the beginning of this pandemic. It was kind of soothing, uh, I think, because it reminded me of different days. And then the other thing I found myself doing a lot was listening to a lot more ambient music, a lot, a lot of, for example, Niels Fram or uh, Olafur Arnolds, Vim Martins, people like that, that, that I listen, always listen to somewhat, um, but, but I listen to more of that. Um, and it was interesting you talking about you know, things that, that really connect with you emotionally. And some of the things I founded, found, founded, <laughs> found that uh, really connected, have connected with me emotionally the strongest over the last few years have been music partly or totally generated by AI, which is fascinating to me because it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's music that maybe on one hand you would think that that wouldn't move you because it was generated by a machine. But on the other hand, because it uses things that no humans would do, it's got this kind of newness to it, and and you know it kind of tweaks different different heartstrings to to other stuff. Anyway, um, so in more general terms, these are difficult times for musicians. You know, in this this era of all you can eat for ten bucks a month streaming. What are your thoughts about how musicians of all sorts, but particularly musicians that are not especially famous, can find ways to add value to what they do to be able to earn a decent living? So um, I think that's a great mystery. And if I had the answer to that, um, I would be the Pied Piper of that set of answers and, and really try to do my best to get that out to the entire world. And um, so I have, I think, a set of um, responses that are 
let's say fairly common answers, common sense answers, um, based on my experience, especially about people who are sort of working in, in niche or marginal areas. So um, one is look for opportunities to associate your work with other kinds of cultural activities that uh, might also have a different funding stream or a different way of getting attention of different audiences. In my case, that has often been working with um, choreographers uh, and working with um, stage productions to do, um, to do music for those things. I have scored a few independent films, um, although frankly, um, they were so independent, there was no money changing hands, but um, I certainly know a number of artists who have managed to find a pretty good, uh, pretty good funding stream from um, just writing music sound cues for either television production or film production. Um, but I really think the idea of uh, getting yourself into a mode where you have an opportunity to collaborate closely with somebody and then where your presence as a musician, you become the special thing because there's tons of visual artists, but you're working in a domain where you're collaborating with a visual artist. And so you as the sound artist is somewhat of a unique creature. And so that brings you a chance to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more unique and have some, some interesting and, um, and different insights to the thing. Uh, that I think is a real, it's a real trick, right? It requires networking, but I do think that um, it can be quite successful. Um, and especially if you're, um, if you're someone who is prolific, likes to be working on different kinds of things and enjoys the challenge of being presented with a creative box or frame to operate within so that it's not just, here's my thing and this is the only thing that I do is this sort of very personal kind of statement. Um, I don't have a, um, I don't have anything to respond to when somebody answers me, that's gonna be a little harder. But for somebody who can work within a, a challenge, a challenging environment where somebody says, well, I'm interested in doing something about this kind of topic or in this kind of structure, I need something that's this kind of rhythm, rhythmic um, pattern, whatever. Um, I think for people who are comfortable in that kind of flexibility, that can be very valuable. So that's number one. Um, Number two is, I think there's a lot of different mechanisms that are being built up for people to find their audience in different kinds of ways, whether it be Patreon or, um, I guess that's how you say it. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Patreon, I think there's a variety of other channels to do that. I think um, some people are doing subscription-based activity where they're producing materials that's uh, unique materials to certain kinds of supporters. Um, certainly, um, there's different kinds of uh, other funding, you know, crowdfunding sources that could be uh, could be drawn upon. I think that's really um, a, an interesting and unique area. I think the thing there, though, is that you have to you have to produce something. It has to be regular enough that somebody feels like they're going to get something out of it. It has to be at a level of quality that they feel like there's going to be something there for them and. I think most successfully, it works when you want to share yourself, not just your work. Because it's not, it's 
it's kind of this weird hybrid of it's not just a social media draw. It's a chance to be closer to the artist's experience or their process or how they're feeling or what their, what their life story is or whatever. And I think um, doing that um, really works for people who, are, who fit into that mold. But if you're not interested in sharing that part of yourself, it's going to be a little bit challenging. Um, and then the last thing I would say that, it, that kind of has been interesting to me is um, just release more stuff, right? Especially if you're talking about virtually releasing things through something like Bandcamp or some other uh, kind of platform uh, where there's uh, not necessarily the same um, set of requirements of like getting something produced and putting it into distribution and getting it out to record stores and and all of that. Um, you know, a couple of my favorite um, artists have gone back into their catalogs and pulled out whole concerts from over the years and have been releasing those um, on a pretty regular basis during COVID. And, you know, even if you only find a couple of hundred people to download it, maybe many of whom might have been at that performance, um, that's still an interesting process. It's an interesting way to keep yourself in front of certain um, audience members. Um, the sort of people who like those odd collectible things will go after that. You may well have done things in those um, live settings that are different or uh, kind of work in a different kind of way than you would do in a, in a studio recording or something like that. So um, I think that's a, that's an interesting model, especially if you're the kind of person who has record, who has, you know, in most cases recorded their shows, um, you know, go back through that catalog and see what's workable. I do think that one caveat I would say is I really recommend that people find someone to master those things because there's, there is this sort of tendency to be like, oh, well, that sounds good enough. Um, and I, I personally am not a golden ears and I, uh, I really appreciate the work of a proper mastering engineer. Um, I think there's a lot of people who do it independently and can do a good job um, without it costing a ton of money. But um, I would, especially if it's a live recording, I would strongly recommend uh, getting somebody involved to to do a quick mastering pass on it before you just throw it up into the world because it's going to otherwise end up um, feeling like it doesn't stand up to the quality of the rest of your work. Yeah, those those are all excellent thoughts. And I mean, over over a decade ago, um, Kevin Kelly posited this theory of a thousand true fans and how how an artist can survive with a thousand fans that are prepared to pay a hundred dollars a year and which is a little maybe out of date now um but i i'm interested in that and the the idea of elevating people from a casual fan listening through spotify or title or something to someone who who will search out the stuff that you're talking about kind of live releases will become a, a patreon i'm also fascinated about uh, an emerging idea of kind of collected patrons, if you like. So uh, you mentioned the Bandcamp um, label-wide releases, which I'm going to dig into after this talk because I didn't even know that was a thing. But one of the problems with being a patron, which I am of a number of artists, is you can end up spending a ton of money bit by bit without really realizing it. And it would be a great thing if 
there was an aggregator that you could say, okay, I want to spend a hundred bucks a month on music um, and supporting musicians, and I want to apportion it this way. And so it kind of kept um, overall financial responsibility for for uh, for that. And then something else I'm hearing that people are doing, which I think is is interesting, is providing physical. Um, I'll call it merchandise, but but bundled, um, for example, releases with with limited edition artwork and things, so people feel they've got something really special if they're a, if they're a true fan. And the final thing I'd say on what you said is, I totally agree with what you say about the the pitfalls or otherwise of being a patron, depending on your personality. So. Someone like my friend Amanda Palmer, who's incredibly extrovert, is is wonderful for for you know she's got a great Patreon going because she shares everything. She shares her life on a daily basis. I know a ton of other musicians who are huge introverts, and you know that would be you know, just horrible for them. So it's kind of horses for courses, really. Absolutely. Um... One thing when you're thinking about or when you're talking about that idea of like grouping your patronage together, mm -hmm. um, I think another thing about that that's quite interesting is, um, you know, finding the people around you who might also be interested in joining in in that because, mm. um, yeah, you know, we were talking earlier about um, tours and how to make a tour work or whatever, but an interest, really interesting phenomena of the past 20 years um, has been living room shows and people yeah. touring and really supporting themselves um, with primarily living room shows um, as their the majority or the backbone of their touring uh, structure. And um, talk about feeling connected to an artist. You know, when you're sitting on on the floor um, of your house or your friend's house and the artist is 12 feet away from you. Um, it's, you don't, you can't get to be a feeling of more connected to the artist than that. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, if you can find five or six people who care about a similar artist to you, you could get to a point where, Hey, you know, maybe we could order organize something over at so-and-so's house um, each of us are willing to throw down 50 bucks. Probably we could find another 10 or 15 people to come in at 10 bucks each. And next thing you know, we're, we've got a booking for somebody. So um, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting world. I think there's a website where you can go on and sign up to host living room shows and you can see artists who are interested in doing that. Um, I'm not sure if I know what the URL of it is, but my guess is if you searched, uh, if you did a web search on it, you could find it pretty easily. Um but uh, that's a really, it's a really interesting um, way to gather people together because then you also have this thing where if you're hosting something or you're attending that thing, you know, you're around 20 people who are from within 30 miles of you who care about the same artists that you do. And that becomes also quite interesting, right? Like what other artists do you yeah. also all care about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. A number of artists I know are doing that, and we've actually done one in our house, a living room show, and uh, it's. I, I agree, it's it's a really interesting way of, um, particularly for artists that are you know not hugely well known, um, making making something special for people. So the last area I really want to dig into, and it's not strictly 
part of this series, but you're probably as well positioned to talk about it as anyone I know with what Clearcom do is events and how they'll come back after the pandemic. So as you mentioned, there's been some streaming events. I've seen some events that have utilized uh, augmented reality. And um, there will be a period of time where we're getting back to doing events. So there'll be, you know, we're already seeing these festivals where you're penned off kind of six or 10 feet away from the nearest pen. But what do you think the long-term uh, effect of what we're, we've all been through will be on the events industry? Uh, first of all, I'm very excited about the idea of there being an upsurge in outdoor events. I enjoy outdoor events. I think they're, I think they can be really a lot of fun. Um, I think they take a good bit of the preciousness out of the audio purity thing. Like, you know, it's sort of like, well, a plane flies over. Oh, well, good. That's mm -hmm. fine. We're in the world, right? Um, as John Cage would tell us, all of those sounds are all part of the performance. Um, but uh, I think it'll be a big summer and even fall um, in the places that are conducive to that uh, weather-wise for a lot of uh, live uh, activity, both on the sort of the big name venue basis, as well as sort of like spontaneous things where somebody's like, hey, you know, let's just do something in the park. Somebody call the mayor and see if we can get put a PA up on next Saturday and have some bands come play. Um, so I think there'll be a lot of activity like that. I think that people will be looking for activity like that. They'll, uh, they've been, you know, pent up for a while. There's a pent up demand waiting to bust out of people having experiences of doing things collectively. So I think that will be a big, a big thing. Um, I'm already hearing about bookings, uh, that are happening at, let's say, small to mid-sized professional venues where they might normally have had on a Friday night a headliner and an opening act that are uh, now starting to schedule things for uh, let's start at four o'clock in the afternoon and go to two. So they might have a seven or eight band lineup hmm. with two quasi headliners scattered around a lineup with some other like-minded bands um, and selling, um, selling tickets with the promise of, you know, you can come and go, uh, you can go out and get some dinner and come back or whatever, um, but you have to show your proof of um, vaccination status. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll see a good bit of that, um, like people using the, the time slots differently than they might have done otherwise. Um, and I think that will be a, a popular uh, twist on things um, in some certain areas, especially in, you know, areas where fandom is is um, a big driver like uh, hip hop or metal or some other areas where um, you know that if there's a, two artists on a list of 10 or 12 that you like, you are pretty confident that there's going to be something you're going to enjoy about the other ones. Mm -hmm. um, I think that'll be a, a big thing, maybe both indoors and outdoors this summer, and that's coming. So I think from a music standpoint, but more broadly, um, I think that people are going to be looking for, we've already been moving towards a world where there's different kinds of environments that people are looking to have experiences in beyond just the artist on stage, I'm standing in the, in the um, audience. Um, people are looking for events that have a, um, a narrative component. 
people are looking for events that have an immersive component, um, that have um, sound, sound and video or visuals and possibly also movement. Um, so I think we'll see more of that. I think there's, um, there's already a lot of work being done on venue-based things um, for that kind of immersive um, environment uh, work. The thing is, is I, I feel like um, people, people are building those as almost more in the museum mode, like uh, an immersive um, audiovisual experience around something that's been, uh, that's topical or whatever, and they're going to put it into production and then they run it for six months or a year or whatever, and then they take it down and then they put something else up for six months. I don't think that people have quite latched onto the idea of using that as a structure for artists to perform in more spontaneously. Um, and I think that's sort of the next horizon. And, you know, I think about events that I've been um, at, that I've been part of. I think we previously talked a little bit about sound traffic control, which was a, a fascinating um, Thing associated in some ways with the quote-unquote ilbient music scene in New York City um, in the early uh, 2000s. Um, DJ Spooky and artists like that who performed in environments that were very surround-oriented and uh, you would go into something like the Brooklyn Anchorage and it would have been lined up for, you know, 40-channel audio across the, um, you know, two acre physical site and you'd move around in the space and you'd be hearing different pieces of audio as you moved around in it. Um, add in visuals and people doing um, sort of the, the VJing kind of things that we've seen in some clubs, um, uh, club environments. And I think you have an opportunity for things to be somewhat different. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly the big name, top name international DJ uh, venues have pushed the envelope there in ways that I think audiences are familiar with the idea of there being a light sound spectacle, immersive things flying at you, people moving around, um, collage of different kinds of audio elements put together, albeit in that setting all beat oriented, but still nonetheless, we sort of built an audience that understands what that kind of performance experience is about. So I think there's a chance there that um, people will latch onto the idea of, of using those spaces differently. Um, and that would be exciting to see if we could start to mix in some other kinds of expressions into that uh, domain. Um, certainly on the theatrical side, on the narrative side, there's no question that people are building venues that are 360 degree venues um, as, you know, actively looking to try to find a new way to get to an audience, a new kind of expression for sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, even before this, I was doing some work with some people um, doing 3D sound, touring 3D sound. So, you know, either using, for example, DB Soundscape or uh, El Acoustics Lisa, uh, you know, Craftwork, Bjork, Image and Heap were out touring with 3D um, immersive audio, which I was involved in 25, 30 years ago at Tempo Reale in Florence, but that was on a permanently installed basis. And, and it's now beginning to be practical to tour with that. And I think a lot of the key to getting people back out of their homes after all of this is creating those immersive in, environments. 
that you really can't get at home. So you're kind of drawn out because it's so compelling. It's so different to what you can see. I've also heard a lot of talk about people doing hybrid events where there might be one main event and then satellite events that are that are kind of done uh, via live link. What are your thoughts on that? That's interesting. So I haven't heard that much about that um, activity level. Um, the one the sort of we've just been collaborating uh, with the production team that's putting on Todd Rundgren's virtual tour. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't actually. Uh, Todd set up at a venue in Chicago and um, is touring um, at different venues, uh, wherein he, on a given night, is playing in a given city virtually. And so you can either go to a venue where they've got uh, video and sound set up so you can be linked to Todd um, and sit in the audience and or log in from home and mm -hmm. see Todd perform in your town, even though he's still in Chicago. That it kind of that's a little bit in that in that direction, slightly, uh, slightly off that axis. But um, I do think that the idea of um, using performers remoteness within the context of the narrative or within the context of the creative expression, I think, um, does really have some some advantages. And certainly we all have experiences to to draw upon when thinking about that now in an audience in a way that's different than we ever did before, right? Having all of us almost, uh, having many of us have spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours in virtual um, interaction with each other over the last year plus um, creates a different set of people's experiences with the idea of virtuality um, in, in creative expression than they ever had before. So certainly that'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. In the same way that we had an outburst of people making movies with their iPhones when we all all of a sudden had really high quality recording video recording devices in our pockets, then there was this sort of out, outflowing of people making uh, work that drew on that experience. I think we'll see the same thing happen with what we've just gone through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think you're right, and I think the um, democratization of 3D 360 um, recording devices will lead to some more kind of AR and VR content. Um, I also, which is a thing people don't really talk much about. They talk about the viewing devices, but they don't really talk about the capture devices and and that movement. You know. Until the capture devices become affordable, it'll be forever the remit of the gaming industry and that kind of high budget thing. But but when they become democratized, then then the content available will become much richer. But I also think you know what I'm hearing is, for example, I did uh, TED Active one year. I usually go to the TED conference, but one year I did TED Active, which is like a live streamed one. And it was really unsatisfying for me to sit and watch like a big screen TV for a week and watch TED Talks. But I, I've got so used to that in the last year that, that you know, the idea of going out to a, a venue and being with a load of like-minded people watching a screen isn't quite as horrific as it was a year ago. And particularly because artists, some artists have really stepped up and, and used kind of AR and the way that, for example, Billie Eilish did on her live stream, that that's going to be tough to tour. So 
being able to put it on in what you know just a few places like for example LA but I live in Portland Oregon it's probably too small a place for for her to come and do the the whole show so maybe I'll go and see it virtually um so that's kind of some of the talk I I've, I've heard going on um before we finish though I just want to ask you if there's any anything else you'd like to say any last thoughts well um I guess I just want to direct people to um, kind of try look at this next period of time as a uh, as an opportunity to discover something that they didn't know about before. You know, um, I think we we're all going to have this moment where something different can happen for us for the first time in however many months, and I encourage people to. Think about finding something different that is really different, like something that they wouldn't have found before. Um, mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I think we're all we've all been transformed by the time that we've been in, and uh, I know I have, and and most people I talk to have been. And I and I want to encourage people to approach um, approach this moment as an active, in, sort of with an act, a sense of active um, influence over your own taste your own consumption as an audience member or whatever and you know if you've never been to an opera go to an opera right if you've never been to see a, a dance performance a modern dance performance go do that like whatever it is um like stretch yourself out a little bit because my guess is you're now different than you were before and the things that are going to work for you may be different than they were before so that's my challenge to all the listeners and um I hope that people I hope that people have that kind of experience. That's a great challenge, a great thing to end with. And I think I hope people are changed by this. I hope that we've we've used this opportunity for pause to think about, you know, all of our lives and how we come back more mindfully and as you say, adventurously. That 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 would be fantastic if people could come back with more of a sense of curiosity and open mindedness. Um having had time to reflect and think about things. So anyway, Bob, how do people get in touch with you if they'd like to, to you know, connect with you and learn more about all of the fascinating things you've done and are doing? I'm fine with people reaching out to my personal email address, which is my last name, Boster, B-O-S-T-E-R, at P-O-Box.com. I also have a, a, a long-standing association with a, a collage uh, based art site called Detritus, uh, which is still up under detritus.net. I don't really have any meaningful content on there, but um, I'm sure there are some recordings uh, there that I'm part of, but uh, my my uh, pseudonym at that part of my life was Mr. Meredith. And then uh, I think there's uh, quite a bit of recording on, um, set on uh, Bandcamp from an, a group I was part of called uh, Rajar, R-A-J-A-R, uh, which was a group of five different artists um, that I think is really still stands up, um, which was all involving live processing of radio transmissions. So um, that was a pretty adventurous, uh, pretty adventurous group. And um, I think those recordings really stand up. And so people want to check those out. That's something to track down. Excellent. I'm certainly going to do that. So thank you so much, Bob, for your time. And thank you to everyone for your time in listening to this. I hope you, as I, found it interesting, useful, enlightening, inspiring. I think all of those things of listening to you talk, Bob. 
So all of the people that are listening, please leave your thoughts on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on. Rate the podcast. Tell us what you thought about it. Give us suggestions for people that you'd like us to talk to. And thanks again for listening and come back and listen to some more episodes. <laughs>